Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, go to biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller. Hello there, Tom. Hello, Gerald. Good to talk to you. Yeah, I'm finally uh, in, in the same time zone, more or less. Well... Give or take three hours. It, it, it feels Whatever. like the same time zone. As you know, we have news and notes, and then we'll get into this evening's topic. If you would like to call in, like Gerald, the call-in number six four six two zero 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 six four zero. We have an active chat room for folks who don't want to call a U.S. number. The chat room's been relatively quiet over the past few episodes, so if you are listening live via Blog Talk Radio, I recommend you join in via the chat room because this evening's topic is going to be particularly interesting. The show next week, August 15th, 8 p.m. Pacific, Friday, An Artificial Quality of Life. This is the second of two hard topics that we're putting out following A-Life 11, the first being this evening, And this discusses the current quality of life of artificial life developers, those in academia, those in industry, and those of us that are independent, and how we can look towards the future in terms of improving the various quality of life issues that seem to plague some or many of us with regards to, I guess, being independent software engineers or academics or all of the above. And in some regard, it ties in a bit with this evening's topic. The following Friday, August 22nd, 8pm Pacific, Zan Gill discusses her book and other related ideas and potential discussions with regards to quality of life, the future, the history of artificial life, all the stuff that we're talking about over the next two weeks. For folks interested in seeing and hearing more about Zan's work, I put the Graysum Silicon Valley video of Zan in the Graysum blog. So go to Graysum with an E org slash blog and scroll down and you should see my link through to Zan Gill's video that was very nicely put online by Al Lundell. The following few weeks, I've had three topics suggested. The first came from Bruce Damer, and that is artificial life isn't just genetic algorithms. Bruce and I have exchanged some correspondence today with regards to what the current definition of artificial life is, particularly with regards to genetic algorithms, phenotypes, genotypes, and how far the definition has really come from about a decade ago. So that will be a an interesting topic, particularly for folks who are tuning in for the first time from the A-Life 11 conference. As I know, a number of different areas were touched on through the conference that has just concluded. A topic from Scott Davis, open source and artificial life revisited. He wanted a greater degree of discussion with regards to open source licenses, how artificial life developers can bring their software together through things like the Evo Grid and future projects. And this is an ongoing discussion, I guess, in the biota community with regards to open source and how it has benefited and how it can strengthen artificial life. In addition, Scott Davis requested promoting artificial life projects a how-to some discussion with regards to how to promote your artificial life project, and I think certainly through things like Graysum and Biota, certainly the Biota podcast as it's listened to by more people. People do actually scroll down the Biota podcast link section, so if you appear on this podcast, if you appear on Biota Live, if you correspond with me or in some way get into the Biota-related discussion, it will promote your project, but that's a little sideline associated to that topic, which I think will probably be discussed in early September, the way the the topics are panning out. So, some news and notes. The Facebook groups. I um, came to a bit of an epiphany during the week and realized that I should probably befriend all the people who were on the Facebook groups associated with Biota and also the ones associated with Nopal Ape, because many of them live in areas where there are existing Graysum groups or where there is a potential for future Graysum groups. And if we look at Graysum Brighton, for example, the two folk associated with that, one of whom is Jamie Matthews, found each other through the Biota Facebook group. So if you have a Facebook account and you're interested in becoming part of the Biota Facebook group, you'll pretty quickly be befriended by me who will try to uh, instigate some attendance or a Graysum meeting or additional contacts to the artificial life community in your area. It's somewhat of a cliched narrative, but when I picked up the Biota mailing list, I went through and found a number of people that were in a number of collected areas, but at the time I didn't feel it was appropriate for me to contact them all individually. However, through something like Facebook, it gives me a great opportunity to actually bring together like-minded folk to discuss artificial life in their area. Well, news from A-Life 11. We had two, I don't know whether you'd call them embedded reporters, but we had Jamie Matthews, 
who I'll be talking with tomorrow and whose podcast chat will go out in the feed probably soon following this very one, and also Larry Yeager. And Larry sent me about six pages worth of notes associated with A-Life 11, which I'll try to put in with regards to the Jamie Matthews discussion as well. It looks like an amazing conference. I was looking at Jamie Matthews' photos. There seems to be a lot of uh, graduate students, a lot of familiar faces, and just a whole lot of young blood, basically, coming through artificial life. Fascinating group. We'll talk more with Jamie tomorrow about that. And also the Biota CDs made it into everyone's knapsack. They seem to have cloth knapsacks that they gave out at the conference, and apparently they were all stuffed with Biota CDs. So Graysum news. There was a meeting at Graysum Boston this week. I haven't heard any news back, although I've had some correspondence with regards to other matters from Brian in Boston. Gerald, the Netherlands, are you folk going to have a Graysum meeting in the near future? Yeah, well, I've been talking to uh, a fellow who's got a really nice location for the second Graysum, which is going to probably take place uh, in early September. So uh, that hasn't hasn't been uh, nailed down quite yet, but uh, I'm sure it'll happen sometime uh, either towards the end of August or the beginning of September. And uh, it should be in a theatre in The Hague. Now, is there any kind of descriptive term with regards to that part of Europe that overlaps the Netherlands and that kind of area? There seems to be a lot of interconnected cities and things like that. Is there a, a general descriptive term for that area of Europe? Well, there's often a word used for uh, the combination of uh, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. It's called the Benelux. And uh, there's also uh, a name for the the big cities in Holland when you gather them all together because they basically uh, connect together very closely. And that's called the, uh, in Dutch, it's the Romstad. It's called the fringe city. So it's like one city, essentially, which uh, extends all the way from Utrecht through Amsterdam and uh and down through the Hague to Rotterdam. Because you know, there are certainly a lot of folk in that general area. I would imagine probably within two or three hours of travel from, from the areas that you're talking about. So as I kind of group people together, in, in particular, great um, chapter areas, I'll, I'll point some dialogue in your direction with regards to what the transit times will be and where the epicenter for these kind of things will end up being. I'm going to try and get more uh, more participation from people who are currently in uh, academia because there's uh, there's a good, probably good number of people working on projects related. And hopefully, uh, last time, I forget the name of the guy we were talking to before, the guy who had the, uh, the plant simulations, but I hope to get him up to, uh, to talk. Stefan, yes. I have some old friends in that part of the world as well who were big in the kind of early artistic artificial life community in Australia. I think I'd cc some correspondence with you to try and get them up to, to wherever you hold it in the future as well because I think there's certainly a, a number of different communities that could all benefit from having a, a Greytham in that part of the world. News from Silicon Valley. The next Greytham Silicon Valley meeting, I believe, is happening at the end of this month. Asha Yadka, who has been holding a majority of the Greytham Silicon Valleys at SRI, will present his work, which will be wonderful. And I also asked if Scott Davis, who has appeared on previous Biota Lives, or at least a previous Biota Live, would give a demonstration of Mars Sim and perhaps have some dialogue with John Cumbers with regards to simulating astrobiology and colonization and all these kind of issues, because it would be wonderful to have some video footage of Scott's work and also some additional dialogue. I think that's the ideal setting, basically, for people who are coming into the artificial life community and see that there is potential for artificial life in their work to present their work and just get some general dialogue going. Although, due to the numbers at the last one, I'm not clear. From the photos, there seem to be about 30 or 40 people, and the information I got back from Scott Schaefer was that there were about 70 people that actually attended Grayson Silicon Valley. So in those kind of numbers, it's always quite difficult to get a a genuine discussion going, but maybe they'll break up into groups or maybe there'll be some uh, high-level dialogue which will uh, motivate future collaborations. Well, I have two apologies this evening. Steve Grand was going to be a part of this conversation. Obviously, when you talk about the history of artificial life, Steve Grant has been at a number of points, a number of places with regards to the history of artificial life. So he sends his apologies. And Bruce Damer as well was going to appear. However, 888 or 8808 is the 10-year uh, anniversary of his farm. So I spoke to Galen today and passed on my congratulations to them both for operating the farm. He's been doing a lot of work recently with regards to creating uh, numerous speaking and artistic areas on his farm. If you go to Damer.com, you'll see some of the photos. However, I've seen some more recent photos which have wonderful paths and uh, Various other areas that, uh, you know, breakaway groups could uh, congregate. The dome apparently is 
up and functional, where I believe there will be future biota-related discussions. So it's wonderful that we will uh, have a speaking space in the future in the Bay Area, uh, which can be dedicated to podcast recordings and mini-conferences and breakaways and things like that. Have you ever visited Bruce in the Bay Area, Gerald? I was wondering if you had been there because um, I was there one time uh, when I was going to Java One, and I stayed at his house for uh, a day or two. It's a it's a lovely area. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful place. I've never been to Bruce's property. I lived in the Bay Area for about eighteen months, and I spoke to Bruce on the phone maybe two or three times over that period. But I'm not sure what he was doing at the time. I seem to recall he was either consulting for Apple or he was doing some consultancy and I was doing some other stuff in the Bay Area. We never actually crossed paths there. The first time we met was down in L.A. in, I want to say, 2005, although obviously we'd been in correspondence and you know a wide variety of, of connections prior to then. And then he was in... Las Vegas, I want to say last year, but maybe even the year before. So we got together again, and he was able to meet Michelle. And I'm yet to meet Galen, actually. So there are a wide variety of people I'd like to meet in the Bay Area. And to do it on Bruce's property would be a wonderful thing. I also have, a, obviously, a background interest in the history of uh, computing. The DigiBart, I think, is going to be a, a place that I spend some quality time when I actually get to, to Bruce's land. But it looks like a wonderful space. I'm not sure if you've seen the photos online, Gerald. Have you had an opportunity to see Bruce's new... I haven't, I haven't seen the latest things, no, but I certainly remember the area because uh, we went for little hikes around, uh, around the neighborhood and it's, uh, you know, it's a very hilly uh, and very green area. It's lovely. Yeah, there's a bed and breakfast about 10 minutes walk away and that was certainly what I was considering if I go and visit Bruce because, yeah, it, it does look like a very beautiful area. I've driven through that area a couple of times when I lived in the Bay Area, but I've, I've never looked in on Bruce's property specifically. The Google Street View is remarkably good for wandering around the area. <laughs> I've, I've done a virtual wander around the area from Google Street View, which gave me a sense of the, the terrain and these kind of things as it does. Anyway, for folks interested in calling in and participating in this evening's discussion, the contact number 646-200-0640. We have an active chat room if you're listening via Blog Talk Radio, where you can participate as well. So, Gerald, in terms of the history of artificial life, when you describe the history of artificial life to someone, perhaps a novice or someone who's artificial life curious, where do you begin? The first thing that I think always comes up is, uh, is Conway, because that's, uh, that's the first example that people typically recognize. And then I uh, personally quickly go over to uh, to Tom Ray's Tierra because that was to me the the most sort of shocking example of of something uh, that that you know was really really a surprise. And uh, of course, everyone refers to uh, to um, Carl Sims stuff. Uh, although it's it's sort of surprising that that both of those actually you know completely disappeared from the landscape quite quickly. This is certainly why, well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this topic this evening is that the history of artificial life, everyone has a different history of artificial life. And it's interesting that you start with Conway because I was trying to draw up four or five possible histories of artificial life that were all relatively internally coherent. And Conway is certainly, as you say, one of the... Uh, one of the most universal starting points. However, a history that I prefer to use in some regard, which Bruce has picked up along the way, is the idea that artificial life predates computation. Certainly with my own stuff, it goes back to Bertrand Russell, and the stuff prior to Bertrand Russell, I mean, the stuff in Plato, basically, that uh, is effectively about uh, automata and observations, kind of secondary and tertiary observations of the real world. And I think there's you know, strong artificial life narratives that come from Plato through philosophy, and Bertrand Russell in particular uh, talks about things that I think are, are very heavily venting into artificial life. So you can then say, well, maybe Freeman Dyson in, I guess, the late 60s, early 70s, and then Conway. And then if you want to you know, talk about Chris Langton and these kind of people. But the curious thing with regards to the history of artificial life is the, the gap in the history of artificial life. And that, I guess, occurs somewhere in the uh, early to mid-90s. In order to really discuss this topic, I think we probably need to explore what history is in a kind of functional and descriptive purpose. And certainly in my discussions with Bruce with regards to, for example, the history of computing, this is something which has been uh, simplified and reduced, particularly in the past decade, to something which is almost 
completely fictitious and, and mythological. And certainly when you look at the history of computing or general aspects of history associated with periods of time, uh, even relatively recent periods of time, there is an element of simplification, an element of loss, and I think certainly the contemporary history of artificial life has, has lost a, a large period of time. So in a somewhat abstract sense, I wanted to deconstruct this this evening and also talk with, uh, with you, Gerald, in terms of how it can be reconstructed into something that is meaningful for contemporary artificial life developers. Just out of curiosity, when you, when you give the history of artificial life, how do you move from, say, 1990 through to 2000? Yeah, you know, well, I, I don't, uh, I don't go through it in, a, in a, you know, a chronological way, uh, as you know, sort of uh, painting a picture of continuity because it doesn't seem to be there. You know, there's, um, there's a sense in which, you know, when you when you read about and, and really come to understand what Tom Ray did, there's a, there's a sense that, uh, you know, when you when you understand that, to think, you know, there's something something really big is going to happen and uh, and then you know it just vanished so like what what exactly it, it like, it's like it was going somewhere and then it stopped and then it probably took on another form again but maybe these are just the fits and starts uh, you know in the first uh, in the first years of the real implementations certainly that seems to be a coherent narrative in some regard i'm not sure if you heard the end of bruce's talk in london when larry yeager chimed in towards the end yeah, I heard that, yeah. I think that was, I found particularly fascinating because it's people like Larry and to a certain extent people like Steve Grant who are still part of the discussion who can give this wonderful insight into periods of time in artificial life history, which we don't necessarily... I mean, you went to Biota 2, so maybe we could explore a little bit about Biota 2 in terms of sitting in the presence of people like Tom Ray and Richard Dawkins and people who are really tied in some regard to this history slash mythology associated with artificial life. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of your own kind of historical perspective and what you may have learned through Biota 2? Well, Biota 2 was for me a huge uh, eye-opener because, you know, because of the people, the, the caliber of the people that were there and the variety, actually, because there were, there were a number of people who really uh, took a, a philosophical uh, approach to, to describing uh, you know, artificial life in in terms of like what it could become. Chris Langton, he had he, for example, he came uh, to uh, up to uh, to do his talk, and he didn't have PowerPoint or anything. What he did was he took the uh, those uh, uh, you know transparent sheets of of, uh, of plastic and on a, on a on a you know a regular projecting overhead projector, and uh, and he just got a pen and he drew pictures of how. How it proceed into the future in the form of just several lines, and he just discussed: Will it be the case that artificial life and and uh, and life actually join at some point in the future, or will will uh, will life end and artificial life go on? So he just drew just these these you know incredibly sparse little uh, little line drawings, and uh, and described uh, you know the the possible futures of it, and then. There was an elaborate discussion of um, symbiogenesis, uh, Lynn Margolis stuff. Yeah, there, there was just a, there was a variety of discussions. Not not so much, you know, it wasn't a, a number of practitioners who uh, were describing what they had done, but it was more. You know, there were there were several practitioners, and I, I also got up for a few minutes as well. Uh, you know, it was more more of a philosophical thing, more of a, a discussion of of where it came from and what it might become. It's very speculative. Certainly, and the fascinating thing with uh, Christopher Langton is the impact that he had on Mark Badeau. So when we interviewed, when I interviewed Mark Badeau, Mark Badeau still has, in some regard, this view that artificial life is part of. That's, as you say, the spreading lines that Chris Langton drew on the overhead and the inserts that Langton offered in those spreading lines, I think, has really stuck with Mark Bedeau up until this day. And certainly the, the stuff that goes through the Artificial Life Journal does follow quite closely along with Langton's original vision. We were also privileged to see, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins give us a bit of a, a story, not necessarily about artificial life, but about, you know, genetics and uh, and and how... Uh, you know the the requirements for for evolution uh, in terms of like uh, what he describes as fidelity, fecundity, and longevity. And he was he was describing, for example, his uh, his main uh, example was uh, was kind of a origami. So he said, if I fold this piece of paper, and he proceeded to fold some origami, 
and then the uh, you know would ask the first person in the in the front row to uh, to do the same thing, and they would uh, make an attempt, and the second person would watch the first person, and the third person would watch the second person, etc. By the end of the first row, the, the, the knowledge of, of how to fold that origami would be completely gone. And, uh, and he said, uh, you know, in, in what, what DNA does is it actually records it in terms of instructions. So if you were to give the instructions and pass that on to everyone, then, uh, then you could have, you know, 100% accuracy in the, uh, in the reproduction of it. So, it was, you know, th- these kinds of very sort of tactile descriptions of the process of, of real life was, was really informative. Yes, I mean, an interesting then with regards to talking to Jamie Matthews tomorrow is that Jamie Matthews' paper at A-Life 11 related to taking Dawkins' circa 76 re-memetics and map it onto that idea of, um, I believe he, he calls it Chinese whispers, and it was actually a much later paper that he was quoting, I think 2004, Dawkins talking about that phenomenon as you describe him showing it at, at Biota too. So yeah, Jamie Matthews is an interesting van into that and I'll talk a little bit about, with Jamie tomorrow about how he links those two ideas of Dawkins. The reason that I put this topic out in, in Biota Live came through listening to Bruce talk about the interaction between Dawkins, Adams and the remaining group at Biota too, and how you know, this appears to have inspired a large part of Dawkins' more recent work, particularly in reflecting on the Adams talk. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't remember much of the contents of the Adams talk. I'd have to listen to it again, but it was uh, it, it was very funny, as <laughs> as you would expect from him, of course. For 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 Dawkins, I'm sure it was a, a an opportunity to uh, to take a, a very different look at what he what he's been busy with for years and years. You know, he comes from the uh, from from the from the biological uh, end of things, I'm sure he uh, he you know reads uh, endless numbers of uh, of papers and uh, and descriptions of experiments and uh, and discoveries in in uh, you know the real world of of real life and then being uh, confronted with uh, a bunch of people who are busying themselves with uh, with creating and simulating life. Uh, I'm sure it uh, it uh, tweaked his uh, philosophical bent. And, and got him thinking more in terms of, uh, of uh, you know, the philosophical angle. Yes, I think it's an interesting causation that Bruce puts together. Obviously, Douglas Adams passed away, what, probably two, three years after Biota 2. But, I mean, Bruce says that there is actually a, a causal link with regards to Dawkins' most recent work and what occurred at Biota 2. In reading Dawkins' more recent work, do you get the same feeling, or do you think this is... Bruce adding something that wasn't actually there. I don't know. It's a bit of a speculation to uh, to say uh, to, to you know to talk about what uh, what Dawkins is being uh, affected by. I think one of the things that uh, that that prompted sort of the new atheists to come out with these uh, these books was 9/11. You know, people were suddenly thinking in terms of uh, what what's going on here uh, because uh, the best description of this I found was from Dennett who. Uh, who uh, you know describes it as a sort of a, a, a human missile, you know, something that was uh, comparable to uh, to a, a I think it's called a lancet fluke, something that uh, it's a it's a tiny tiny little animal that occupies the brain of an ant and makes the ant climb as high as possible onto a onto a, a blade of grass in order to be eaten by a mammal because uh, you know it's not in the interest of the ant whatsoever to climb up as high as possible but the ant is you know uh, com- uncontrollably compelled to do so by the fluke that has uh, you know paras- uh, parasitically occupied his brain so uh, in, you know in the same sense the uh, the people who were you know sufficiently under the influence of absolutist religious convictions were were capable of uh, you know surrendering their own lives in order to achieve something that was not necessarily good for them at all, except for, of course, they, their beliefs that, uh, that they would be rewarded, but that's, uh, that's all part of the whole uh, you know, occupation of their minds that happened. So I think uh, you know, the events of 9-11 were probably more a prompting factor in, in the, the, uh, the books of the New Atheists. So I want to, I'm, I'm trying to get the reference exactly right, but I think it was Penn Jillette's radio show of maybe 
two, three years ago when they had Professor Dawkins on, and he referred to the fact that he had been discussing the ideas of what would later become the God Delusion with his agent for years prior to 9-11. But 9-11 was the turning point in order for the agent to say, now will be the perfect time to write this book. Prior to that, the agent still had concerns. But this is completely off topic with regards to what we're talking about. Bar to look perhaps at the linking with regards to the historical figures in artificial life and what they do after they leave talking about artificial life explicitly and how that affects the artificial life community. Now, Dawkins, and this came through when I was chatting with uh, John Riley. I'm not sure if you've heard that uh, by Earth Alive, but he wasn't aware that Dawkins had any impact on artificial life. And I think what's curious through the historical narrative of artificial life is that there are people who we know about because we're part of the artificial life community. Chris Langton's a good example of that. To a certain extent, well, you've talked about Tom Ray and you've talked about Carl Sims, and people outside the artificial life community, but relatively close, know those names. But, for example, when I was on Floss Weekly, the people who were listening to Floss Weekly wouldn't necessarily know about Carl Sims' blocky creatures. A lot of them know, however, about John Klein's brevet which brings that forward in a contemporary setting. But a lot of these names, when they leave the artificial life community and when they're no longer actively promoting or talking about or, you know, a part of the discussion, they don't continue on to, to promote artificial life in a kind of contemporary setting. Do you feel Dawkins still implicitly promotes artificial life? I wouldn't say promotes it. I mean, he he was uh, in a way way back. He uh, he did an experiment with uh, with his biomorphs uh, a long long time ago, just to uh, to explore the idea of genetic variation. And in that case, it was kind of a, an aesthetic selection, and that you know that can prompt a number of other experiments, and it it leads you to think in, in these terms. For me, it was the, one of the biggest inspirations uh, from Dawkins. And he's written a number of books, and they're all more or less the same theme, but. Uh, one book stands out in my in my memory, which is the uh, the extended phenotype, which is uh, it's a book that describes you know the uh, the bird's nest or the um, the spider web as being uh, you know a, a manifestation of the the genotype of the spider and the bird. So in, in that way, you know you're sort of freed up from the idea of the genotype being you know the DNA and the phenotype being exclusively the body that the DNA produces, it, it can be more than the body. And when you when you cross that threshold, I think that's a real inspiration for, for artificial life because you, you can think of in, in terms of a genotype being uh, manifesting itself in, uh, as a phenotype in terms of behavior, which I think is, uh, you know, it, it opens doors for, for doing that kind of experiment. But what's interesting with regards to Dawkins' connection with artificial life kind of continuing on is that he still occasionally in things like TED conference talks refers to Steve Grant's work and certainly Bruce, Steve and I have been in some discussion with regards to the potential of Bruce, Steve Grant and Professor Dawkins getting together for some extended dialogue in the future because certainly Professor Dawkins still talks about Steve Grant's work and there are still interesting connections. I mean, obviously, with regards to the biota site, I keep a track of that in terms of the hits coming in, particularly when the TED Talks link back into either some of Steve Grant's work on the biota site or obviously Douglas Adams' presentation at Biota 2. But moving through this, if you were going to give a coherent history with regards to kind of contemporary artificial life and how they link back to these inspirational figures, how, how do you do it, Gerald? One thing I would do before I would really dare to do a, a good, uh, you know, chronological history of it is, is I would want to uh, sort of dive deeply into what happened in the academic world in you know in, in, the, in the A-Life conferences for example although um, one of the themes at Biota 2 way back in, in Cambridge and I think it was 98 was that the A-Life conferences were sort of they became dry that's what uh, Chris Langton was saying you know it became uh, a lot less inspiring in a way it became a lot more uh, you know, dry and academic, but I'm still uh, curious what there should be a way to um, go through the um, the history of the A life conferences, the you know the actual academic approach, and 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 
see if there are things that can be recognized in there because a lot of the rest outside of that seems a lot more patchy. So, and academics have this, uh, this thing for continuity. You know, they constantly uh, cite each other and, uh, and everything, everything you write has to be related to something that's already been written and, and, you know, just expand on it slightly. So there you'll probably find the most continuity. Although, you know, it, it would be a long study. It would maybe be hard to, uh, to keep it spicy enough. Well, I've attempted to do this, and I've attempted to do this with the assistance of Jay Lemon. In fact, I was hoping Jay is the uh, the third apology with regards to this evening's discussion, because obviously through doing the uh, Wikipedia article on Artificial Life and doing the revised edits associated with that, I contacted the Artificial Life Journal and got Jay a wide variety of back issues. There are also a number of the... Uh, Artificial Life Journal and the uh, A-Life Conference papers that are available online. But reconstructing those, you find maybe three references that people return to, and that is Langton, Dawkins, and Sims, fundamentally. Because, you know, you would think that there would be a number of milestones along the way. You'd think that. And this is what I think is curious with regards to just tracking academic references that you would think that there are more linking points. And what you find is probably beautiful spirals in some regards where people start exploring topics and they become fashionable and then they spiral in and then, you know, another topic. I mean, this is one of the things that I'm really looking forward to discussing with Jamie tomorrow is, and this was certainly Larry Yeager's uh, feedback through his six pages, was that there was a lot of new blood and new energy in this year's Artificial Life Conference primarily because it wasn't held in the U.S. And there seemed oh. to be a lot of graduate students that attended, or perhaps graduate early PhDs. These, it was a much younger audience than you would see even at, a, well, of the Grey Thumb meetings that I've seen. And I think from, from my perspective, that's absolutely fascinating, particularly as a good number of these people are now listening to us talk. <laughs> some regard as well. But I think there is a new movement. And also in befriending these people on Facebook, as I've done this week, a lot of them are taking actual courses that are teaching them artificial life through some means or another. And this is another reason that's going to be wonderful to talk to Larry about where he gets his texts from when he teaches people about artificial life. I was also, uh, I was also you know, the, really surprised by... Um and, and pleased with what I heard from Stefan with his, uh, with his talk about, you know, simulating plants and uh, how elaborate that was and how, uh, you know, it was really intended to, uh, to mimic as much as possible. It's funny, I was reading just now uh, on the, I think it was something on the wiki page where uh, Tom Ray said it, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't simulating uh, life, but it was uh, synthesizing life. Yes, I think what we call it in the future is going to be very interesting. For Dick Gordon's book, you, of all people, will be shocked the most from this, Gerald. I didn't use the term <laughs> artificial life once in my, in my chapter for Dick Gordon. Because my I goodness. Thought, yes, I know. I'm, I'm a reformed artificial lifer. I thought this is, this is ridiculous because, firstly, I don't want to explore, as you say, the, uh, the, the, the paper history. I want to say in three to five to ten years, it will be something completely different to what it is now. It's ever-expanding. It's not just, you know, genetic algorithms in particular ways. It's a wide variety of other things, too. And why would I want to start defining it with a kind of, you know, uh, microscope looking in when really, you know, I need a telescope? Like we were talking about, you know, there just uh, there seems to be a, a, just a, a handful of, of uh, a very specific milestones. So... Uh, it could well be that, uh, you know, in a few years' time, there will be a few new ones, but they might not be things that we can predict right now because it might, you know, somebody might come out of uh, out of left field and, and, and create another milestone like uh, like Sims or uh, or Tom Ray or, or Conway, for example. Uh, by the way, the, um, the, the reference I gave you this week to the powder game, you, you played with that a little? Oh, yes. That that is to me an, an incredible piece of work. It's not not artificial life, but it would be a really interesting foundation for it. Don't well, you think? in some regard, it's it's fundamental cellular automata in terms of algorithm an algorithmic approach. Sure. Are you sure it's, you sure it's cellular automata? When we say that the history of artificial life is relatively abstract, the definitions of of, of these things is relatively abstract too. I, in terms of the algorithmic approach, it's somewhere between, you know, Conway's life approached in terms of cells and movement, but I think there are 
certainly the, the construction is that there are, what, 20? Are there 20 different active properties that you can put into the environment? I don't know, probably more. Yeah, okay. So there, there are X number of things that you can put into the environment, and they affect the environment in different ways, and they some of them move, some of them manipulate. The thing has been coded so well. I mean, it's just amazing how it performs. And, and, uh, and I can see that as being uh, something that would, uh, you know, be useful in exploring sort of the, um, the chemical soup approach that, uh, that Bruce was talking about last week. I mean, this is something that Bruce and I discussed and came up today. I mean, I'm probably more likely to call something artificial life and then explore how it's artificial life, as we have done with regards to, uh, to this particular example, than not. As you may have heard in previous narratives, there was a time when Noble 8 wasn't considered artificial life because artificial life was a very tight set of definitions. And then slowly but surely, the definition of artificial life expanded and included Noble 8 and included a wide variety of other projects. So I'd hate to say that things weren't artificial life in the current context, only to be completely out of date in a year or two's time. Returning to this idea of history, do you think it's important currently that we have people like Jay Lemon to create, not necessarily as we've discussed, a coherent history, but at least something that will enable a kind of improved growth in artificial life? Or are you happy with the existing history as it kind of holds together in a haphazard kind of way? No, I, re I really think that, uh, that that the field deserves some sort of uh, you know synthesizing uh, book that 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 brings it all together and and highlights the uh, the, the diverse uh, milestones that are, that have happened. I'm sure that will be uh, useful for uh, you know for contextualizing the things that that are to come. But once again, you know, the, I have this sense that um, the next milestone will come from from left field. Do you think there's any way that history can hamper that milestone, or do you think the milestone will occur independent of the narrative we've had to date? It's hard to say. I, I don't know. I, th I think, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, just swimming in, in a history of it for a while and then forgetting it and then, uh, and then going on and doing your own thing is probably the, you know, the, the best way to, to get further. It's, it's, uh, it has definitely some use. I mean, even the academic approach, however many small incremental changes, it's, it's still, you know, still keeping the subject alive and having, uh, you know, getting a group of people together to explore the different aspects of it. And I'm sure there are, there are gems to be found in it and, and gems that might just inspire, you know, provide a couple of components for, for some, uh, some really interesting development. By the way, um, I've, I've, come, uh, I've, I've started a really interesting uh, correspondence with, uh, with Scott Schaefer. We're, we're really getting into <laughs> the details of our different projects and, uh, and uh, really coming together on it. It's going to be interesting. I think we might eventually end up collaborating. Yes, I think Scott is the kind of mind who is who is begging for some kind of collaboration. I thought just through proximity, he and Jeffrey Ventrella could get together with regards to some hybridize of Dawkins Puddle or whatever it becomes. But I mean, I certainly see a good deal of them in what you've been trying to uh, achieve recently with regards to kind of underlying abstracted genetics and certainly a lot of his background tinkerings as well. So maybe... I don't know where you guys are currently looking for the, the solution and collecting your expertise, but that was certainly something that struck me looking at Scott's recent Graytham presentations was that he may have insights into that aspect of your work as well. Is that the part of you, the overlap that you're seeing currently, or is it something even more diverse? Well, we're just kind of getting acquainted, but we, we seem to be thinking along the same lines, and I think there's, uh, there's going to be some correspondences that will, uh, that, will be, uh, you know, that will amount to a mutual inspiration. Wonderful. That's great news. And for folks listening for the first time, maybe you've attended A-Life 11, collaboration is one of the main outcomes or one of the main desired outcomes from the Biota Project. Uh, we talk about a wide variety of ideas. Certainly Bruce Damer's EvoGrid has, uh, has received a good airing and there will be other collective projects that will be discussed in the future. An interesting point with regards to discussing history is I'm not sure if you've been following Bruce's uh, Virtual Worlds timeline, Gerald, but the ability to use that kind of technology with regards to artificial life could produce, I don't want to say a wiki-like, because Bruce is talking about a wide variety of different uh, media coming together, including potentially even software. But I mean, the ability to have something like that would certainly be a, a wonderful reference for someone who is looking to 
write a history of artificial life. My, my own sense is that a written history of artificial life to the richness that you and I have been discussing, Gerald, would probably contain at least 100, if not more, different individuals and projects. I mean, it's in fact a very rich and diverse thing that we were already trying to grasp in the present day. Is that the way you feel about it as well? Well, it's, uh, suppose you were to put that in, in book form, you know, theoretically, and, and suppose it were a hundred different uh, different things. Uh, you know, wh- how how much uh, how much attention could you pay to each of the hundred? You know, it would it would have to be uh, in the form of a, a you know a four page anecdote or something, and then you'd already have a fairly large book. So you know, it's, it's difficult to cover that much ground. I think yeah, it's going to be difficult to, uh, to to put it in those terms. Uh, now, the academic world is probably a little too incremental. You know, the history uh, milestones that we've been talking about are a little bit too sparse. And, uh, you know, so we've got to find a middle ground probably. The kind of vein between hobbyist and academia currently is the 12 or 16 project collection, which Marcia Komanchinsky's name springs to mind because he's brought together a couple of these collections in the past and, and from what it appears, a couple of the collections in the future. But I'm not sure... I think there's also a need for a kind of a high undergraduate, graduate student level text that explores this in a similar realm. And it will be wonderful talking to Larry Ager as someone who has observed and participated in the history of artificial life, but also has very intimate acquaintance with regards to uh, teaching students about artificial life, how that text could exist or whether... This is the interesting thing. When Bruce and I did our discussion from books to the internet early on in the Biota Live this is always the problem that by talking about things in the context of books we're probably already eliminating a, a good number of the, the folk who are currently listening to us via, via podcast form I mean, do you see this as being an electronic project or do you still see it needing that physicality of books I don't know. The uh, the things that uh, that Scott and I are really synchronizing, Scott Schaefer and I are really synchronizing on is, is you know, we're we're really uh, thinking in terms of of uh, abstractions and uh, and you know, trying to create some building blocks. And and what would be really, I think, important for future projects is if there were some really effective sort of foundational building blocks that could be reused. And that's uh, you know, it's a it's a tall order. I like thinking in terms of abstractions like that very much, and uh, and I think I'm really on the right track with the latest uh, approach. I'm creating something I'm calling uh, the blind watchmaker, which is uh, I think it's fundamental and and simple enough and and uh, you know deep enough that I think uh, it can be the basis of a number of things. And my my goal is to demonstrate several different things based on it, so that uh, so that people can maybe branch out and do more with it. Is this the brevet metaphor fundamentally, that it becomes almost like an environment that you create different kinds of artificial life in? Yeah, something like that, yeah. And, and, and uh, it's, it's like finding the right abstractions is, I think, the, one of the most uh, challenging things. And, and that's, the, that's the tour I'm on right now. That's the thing I'm trying to accomplish. And uh, by the way, if there's anyone listening who's interested, please contact me, and uh, I'd love to have some more discussions about this. And Scott is also very open to discussion, so we're uh, we're really uh, trying to uh, establish some uh, some sort of core abstractions. This kind of discussion could easily be framed on the uh, Biota Conversations mailing list as well. Folks interested in joining the Biota Conversations mailing list, go to the Biota site, biota.org, click on the mailing lists, go down to Biota Conv and subscribe to that, and that will give you the opportunity to chat with Gerald and Scott Schaefer and a wide variety of people who have participated in the uh, Biota podcast to date. What you seem to be describing, Gerald, is almost a, a need for a numerical methods of artificial life, which seems to be really what Dick Gordon is trying to get at as well. Do you see that there's a, a good degree of overlap between what you're talking about and what Dick's talking about? Um, yeah, I guess so. Um, but what what you're describing is, is definitely uh, the core of what we're trying to approach. Is not necessarily numerical methods, but just ways to structure the the, the core of it. Is this a one section will be devoted to multi-agent sustainability? One section will be devoted to genetic algorithms. One section will be devoted to communication involving language. Is this the kind of thing that you're thinking of? That will require a bit more uh, diverse expertise than just myself and Scott. You know, very, very willing to have other people get involved to think in those terms and, and uh, go about uh, creating some of the other uh, building blocks if possible, for sure. 
So for someone listening in, what is your current discussion with Scott relating to in that kind of context? Well, his um, his idea right now is to um, you know have the thinking part of 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 the the organism in a sense at a distance uh, and abstracted from the um, the acting part. So there's uh, you know a, a separation that provides a kind of abstraction that allow you to swap in different things. His whole theme is uh, pluggability. What I'm working on is is the idea of these nuanced instruction sets as being a sort of a, a generic approach to coding more or less anything based on, on some sort of, you know, genetic backdrop. Um, the, the, the genome idea that, um, that I'm working on is just as, as basic as possible, like to a stream of binary bits, and the bits come from nowhere. So, uh, it, you know, I think, you know, my, my effort is to make it as core as possible, as fundamental as possible, so that, uh, so that any number of things can be, uh, can be built on the basis of that. So the idea is basically to have instructions compressed to the, the smallest number of bits possible so that we can have the, the greatest diversity of instructions and these instructions are also nuanced so you can actually create uh, families of instructions. And the idea is to make it really easy to invent instruction sets to do completely different things. The solution to date has gone in two directions and I think what you were describing is almost the scripting solution to this problem. And the other solution has been the kind of plug-in solution to the problem. And ironically, Brevet has moved from, well, it still contains the scripting, but now also contains a heavy plug-in solution. And this is ultimately what Bruce is trying to do with moving digital space into artificial life as well, is to have a, a potential for either scripting on one end or plug-in on the other. Do you see what you're doing as really being part of a kind of scripting language solution where you construct some kind of language that enables these abstract things to be written in, or do you think it's something which is considerably more low level than that? Kind of both. I mean, uh, on the one hand, you, you could think of it as scripting, and it can be uh, used as scripting, and that's the first application of it. I've got this uh, this focus in the background that I can't, can't really let go of, and that is the idea that what is scripted now could be compiled later. Scott and I have already been discussing uh, the possibility of uh, having the stuff uh, generate Java bytecodes, which are then, uh, you know, uh, loaded into the virtual machine. So you're, you know, you're writing machine code with the scripting. So in effect, you know, you, you bypass the scripting and you get into a domain that, uh, you know, that's translated into really fast machine code. And um, the way I'm uh, uh, approaching this now as well is with, uh, with, you know, vector processors and uh, graphics processors in the back of my mind, which are processors that are very bad at, at branching. So you've got, you know, if you put code in a graphics processor that has if statements and, uh, and switch statements, then, uh, then it doesn't perform well. But if you just have a series of instructions with no branches, then that's, you know, the cat's meow for these kinds of processors. So my idea is that, you know, the scripts will emerge. That's the whole idea of, you know, having this come out of nowhere, but then the scripts will also be compilable into something that is, you know, lightning fast and can be applied to something, you know, then, then it's bypassing the scripting, it's sort of being realized in machine code. So that's the kind of approach I'm trying to take. Well, with three minutes remaining, uh, another thing that came through the uh, Biota Conversations mailing list was this uh, Eden application that also produces YouTube video clips, and I thought it was a fascinating application of something which, well, one could debate what aspects were artificial life related, but certainly the ability to generate YouTube output, I thought, could lend itself to a wide variety of existing and future artificial life projects in terms of getting the message out relatively rapidly through video. Have you thought about doing something like that with regards to uh, Darwin at Home? Well, you've seen before that I've I've been uh, creating films in the past, and I've, I've once again for the for the Tensegrity project, uh, I've revived the idea of uh, or the the code that does the um, producing the the ray trace images, which can be turned into movies. It's really important to be able to generate you know uh, output that is uh, in a really accessible form, and uh, and movies are, are really uh, excellent at that. What, what would also be really good is to get people involved who are uh, interested in, in, uh, and capable of doing stuff with audio. And if you can combine that, then you've got more, more compelling output that, that really, you know, it has to become accessible. People have to be able to look at it and see exactly what it is and really get, get their interest tweaked by that.
Yes, audio is audio is absolutely fascinating. Not much has been done with that. I was I was really uh, glad to see Jeffrey's work on that uh, on that domain, but it didn't seem to go very far. You know, it could go a lot farther than that. I think. Yeah, the original Noble Ape had uh, an audio component, particularly with regards to the ape's heartbeat and moving towards the ocean and stuff. And I have a lot of real-time source and OpenAL, I think, is the uh, Apple and potentially other perhaps Linux implementation. And I, or it's one of those projects that's uh, always just six months away with regards to Noble Ape development. But, Gerald, we've, we've run out of time. We have less than a minute left. So I'd like to thank you for uh, for appearing this evening and having a wonderful chat with regards to history and veining into what you're doing currently. The topic next week, the artificial life, quality of life. I'd like to uh, thank all the folks that are listening to Biota Live for the first time and particularly thank you very much, Gerald, for the chance to chat with you this evening. Nice talking to you, Tom. Always a pleasure.